Revelation chapter 6 today. So you guys can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. And as you turn there, I just want to welcome everybody. Um, You know, it sounds cliche, but I do want to say that we genuinely want to welcome you here. We want you to feel at home, whether you've been attending here for years or whether you've been here for the first time today or whether you're at home watching online. We, We really want you to feel that you are welcome among us. And I shared this with some of you. I was struck um, by this image as I was at the park with my kids, and there was this large play group, play date, that came to the playground, and they were ignoring the other kids that were already on the playground. And as I was watching this pan out, um, it, it kind of burdened me for the church, n- not just our church, but the church in general. And it really challenged me that, that we need to be a group of people that is passionate about worshiping Jesus together, but that is also passionate about welcoming outsiders into our family. And so I just want to make that known today. We, we want to welcome you. If you have questions, uh, if you want to get connected more, if you need information, please let me know. We'd love to chat with you. That being said, Revelation chapter 6. There is a great existential question that has plagued humanity since the dawn of time. It's a question that we all obsess over, and the question is, when? As soon as we're old enough to utter those words, we begin badgering our parents with that question. You know, I have these conversations multiple times in a day with my children. When are we going to do this? When are we going to do that? When is this going to happen? When is church going to be over? (laughs) Parents, you know how this goes. So when it comes to not just little kids, not just small issues, when it comes to the grand themes in the Bible, eternity, spiritual life, God's kingdom, heaven, all of these things, We're no less consumed with the question, when? So as we transition today from Revelation 5 into Revelation 6, we're going to be entering this large portion of the book, almost the entirety of the book of Revelation, that deals with apocalyptic imagery of God's judgment on sinners. And that judgment culminates with the end of all things as we know it, the end of this age. And so we can't help but ask, as we study these things, these sobering realities, we want to know when. We want to know the timeline. We want to know the sequence. Have you guys ever wondered about those things? Yes, no? Anybody? Yeah, we want to know when. You guys might recall that in Matthew 24, Jesus had a very similar conversation with his disciples. Very similar to the conversation I have with my kids about when these things are going to happen, right? After Jesus had prophesied that the temple was going to be destroyed, his disciples pulled him aside privately and they said, tell us, when will these things be? When is going to be the end of the age? And what is the sign that is going to let us know when it's happening? Fast forward to Acts chapter 1. They still didn't get the memo. Even though Jesus answered their question indirectly, they still asked him again. In Acts chapter 1, they said, Lord, is it now? Now? Is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom? 
and how he had already deflected once, but now he's more blunt in his answer, right? In Acts chapter 1. He said to them, It is not for you to know times and seasons that the Lord has fixed. But here's what you do need to know. Here's what he told his disciples. It's not for you to know the times and seasons, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. That is what he told the disciples they needed to know. Dennis Johnson writes that these questions by the apostles um, were, as indicated by Jesus, inappropriate attempts to probe off-limit secrets. So if the precise timeline and the sequence, the order of these prophetic apocalyptic events was necessary for us to fulfill our mission, don't you think Jesus would have given those details in that moment? But he didn't. So as we begin today to study the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls, again, these are sobering judgment passages. The way that we think about the timing and the sequence, the order of these events, is going to shape how we understand how these things relate to us. And just to be blunt, specifically when it comes to the issue of the rapture, the way that you interpret the rapture and when you believe it is going to occur will shape the way that you think about these. And so I'm not going to parse all that out. There's several major viewpoints on when that will happen. Um, and there's good arguments for many of them. But that's not for our uh, time today. If you want to study that, I would love to talk with you about it. But my point is that the temptation is to get hung up on the when. And when we get hung up on the when and we obsess over the order and try to figure out, is this what's happening here? Is this person doing that? Is this being fulfilled? As we get hung up on that, we actually miss the intent of these prophecies. So Dennis Johnson continues as we enter into Revelation 6. He says this, When the Lamb takes the scroll and begins to break its seals, we look through John's eyes for answers to our questions. When? What? How long? But instead of answering our questions, the prolonged process of preparing to unroll that scroll presents a series of portraits that answer the question, why? If the lion lamb has conquered, then why does the world continue to be a place of evil, violence, and misery? And that's the question that we're going to address today. We all grapple with that. As Dan talked about last week, we're tired of seeing the news headlines around us. Why are these things still happening if the lion lamb has conquered? So what I hope to show you in the big picture of today's text is that God uses limited, foreshadowing judgments to punish evil in the world and lead sinners to repentance before his final judgment is unveiled. Let's read Revelation chapter 6, the first eight verses. John writes, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. 
And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that the people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature, the third living creature, say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. This is a serious, sobering passage. Let me just pray that the Lord would help us understand these things. Lord, we come before you right now to think about and grapple with heavy, heavy, massive truths that bear weighty implications for our lives. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, open our spirit, our hearts, our minds to understand who you really are and to understand how we should respond to this truth, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I think most of us have recently felt the anxiety and the anticipation that comes while you await the announcement of a verdict from a high-profile court case. If you remember, in Revelation 6, we're in the middle of this divine courtroom scene where the throne has been set to bring judgment to bear. The eternal creator is seated on his throne, and in his hand, he holds a legal document with the verdict for all of his creation. That legal document was written on a scroll, as we read last week, and it was rolled up and it was sealed with seven seals. Historically, the wax seal that's indicated here was an important insignia that would have prevented unauthorized people from accessing the contents of the document. But it also, beyond that, indicated that there were serious contractual obligations held within that document. There would have been serious consequence if an unauthorized person opened that scroll. And if you remember, last week, John is distressed because there's no one in heaven or on earth that is able, that is authorized to open that scroll. And he begins to weep. He was anxious for that verdict. All of heaven was awaiting its pronouncement. Yet there was no one to open it. Until all of a sudden, you guys remember, the lamb that was slain appears before the throne. And the lamb that was slain is worthy to take that scroll, to break its seals, and to open it. I want to point out that it's only because of God's acts of creation and redemption that entitle him to open that scroll. It's those acts of creation and redemption that actually are the only things that fulfill the covenant inside. 
and that entitles him to break the seals and open it. Now, as Dan mentioned last week, people love to talk about the humility and the meekness of Jesus. But it's too common for us to shy away from the fact that he is the righteous judge. We squirm at the idea that Jesus would judge someone, don't we? It's uncomfortable. Yet somehow we have no problem when we perceive injustice around us trying to mete out our own distorted version of justice in those moments, right? We have nothing that would make us feel uncomfortable about trying to get justice for ourselves. Yet when we think about Jesus being the true judge, we squirm and we get uncomfortable. I want you to see through this text that Jesus is actually good and right in his justice. And it's actually his justice that makes his love perfect. He does not let the wicked go unpunished and unaccountable for their wickedness. We have to understand that true justice must come from outside of ourselves. It must come from outside of this world as we look around and nobody has the answer, right? The first point, as the Lamb begins to methodically open the seals of this scroll in Revelation 6, is that the judgments released are commands of Christ. And so before we look at who these horsemen actually are and what they're going to do, I want to emphasize that they are subject to divine authority. Remember, these four living creatures that are gathered around are powerful, supernatural beings that are bowing in reverence and worship to Jesus before the throne. They're in service to the one true king, and they obey him without question. And so as Jesus ceremoniously breaks that first seal, his authority is actually passed on to those living creatures for them to beckon these riders to come before the throne. In verse 1, we see the first rider says, Come with a voice like thunder, and the rider appears. And the subsequent release of those ominous riders upon the earth, this is important, does not happen outside the control and the command of Jesus. In verses 1 and verse 3 and verse 5 and verse 7, we see that each of the four living creatures under the watchful eye of their king beckon those riders to come and to go under the command of Christ. But I also want to point out, it's not just their appearance before the throne that is a command of Christ. It's actually also their assignment and what they're going to carry out that comes from the throne. Look at verse 2 we can see that the first horseman was given a crown. The second rider in verse 4 was permitted to take peace, and he was also given a great sword. The third rider in verse 5 held a scale, presumably also given to him. And the fourth in verse 8 was given authority to kill. That is deep. And most people would argue or state that these things are sovereignly permitted. In other words, Jesus is allowing these things to happen. 
but we have to pay attention to the fact that they're not just sovereignly permitted, they're actually sovereignly appointed to do what they're going to do. The fact that they appear before and are sent out from the throne room of the ruler over all the kings of, of the earth must clue us in that Jesus is not standing idly by while these things are happening. So the imagery of these horsemen actually takes us back to the prophet Zechariah. You guys read the book of Zechariah? It's an obscure one. But this imagery was first recorded by Zechariah as he saw the same thing in Zechariah chapters 6 and, ver and also chapter 1. And in the context of Zechariah's vision, we see again this idea of sovereign permission and sovereign appointment. In Zechariah's vision, the horses present themselves before God's throne and they are commanded to go and patrol the earth. And that task is something that they're impatient to do. They're actually literally biting at the bit to go carry out this patrolling in the earth. Does that remind you guys of the first chapter of Job? The sons of God gather before the Lord to present themselves before him, and among them stands Satan, the adversary. And the Lord questions him, to, from where have you come? And he says this, I have come from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. I think there's a strong case to be made that he was patrolling the earth in that, that same fashion. And from there, the Lord sends him out to do what? To test Job and to prove Job's faithfulness through intense tribulation. So that's the biblical backdrop of these apocalyptic horsemen in Revelation 6. They are summoned before the throne of God, and they are sent out to execute judgment in the world as commanded by Jesus. That's tough to swallow, isn't it? So who are these horsemen, and what are the judgments that they carry out? As the horsemen are sent out, the next thing that we see is the judgments are consequences of rebellion. You might think that that sounds obvious in the context. Yeah, of course. Sin brings judgment, right? The wages of sin is death. We, we know that idea, but I want to propose that it's actually a lot more complex than that. It's a lot more complex than me correcting my child for something that he did right in front of me. And it's a, it's a simple um, A to B consequence. It's much more complex than that. I want to propose that the judgments unfolding here in this text are actually a powerful and complex collaboration of both natural and supernatural rebels who are carrying out acts of judgment as a result of human rebellion by actually committing further acts of rebellion against God's design, and all the while they're serving his sovereign purpose. That's a bit of a mind-bender. Let me say it again, and then we'll unpack it. The judgments released by the four horsemen are a powerful and complex collaboration of both natural and supernatural rebels. These are enemies of God collaborating together who carry out acts of judgment as a result of human rebellion by actually carrying out further rebellion. 
Let's look at the first horse, the white horse. We can deduce from the context that I just mentioned in Zechariah and Job and here in Revelation that these riders are supernatural beings. We're not to be on the lookout for an actual man riding around on a white horse with an empty bow who's somehow magically convincing kingdoms to give him authority. That's not what we're looking for. Look again at verse 2. These are, these are most likely demonic authorities that are operating in the spiritual realm, yet closely alongside the natural realm. It says in verse 2, I looked, and behold, a white horse. Its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. This is an authority that is bent on conquest. The broader context of Revelation clues us in that it's, the kings who are on earth who are seeking after this conquest. That's a big biblical theme. The kings, the rulers on earth, are seeking conquest. And this rider is mounted on a white horse, which was an ancient symbol of successful military campaign. Not only that, he has a bow, which is a big biblical depiction of military power. And beyond that, he is given a crown. He's given a victor's crown. Not a royal crown, not a diadem. He is given a victor's crown because he has conquered something. This is a clear depiction of military conquest in the world that is influenced by demonic power. The rider on the white horse is sent out to stir up the kings of earth to pursue conquest. And all the end-time prophecies in the Bible make it clear when there's a terrible beast that wreaks havoc. It is actually not a beast, it's a human kingdom or empire. And so these kings are seeking conquest. They're bent on dominance. They're seeking their own wealth and power at the expense of others. And all the while they're making empty claims that they are the savior. They are the answer to the problems. They can solve everything. Think about the examples throughout the Bible of God actually using wicked kings and kingdoms to, to conquer other nations and actually bring judgment through their wickedness. You have the Midianites, the Philistines, the Canaanites, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Romans. There's so many more that are mentioned in the Bible. But this is a common theme that God would actually allow and even command demonic authorities to influence earthly rulers to go get what they want, to go take dominance over other people. Let's look at the second horse. Stop and think for a second how military conquest takes place. Diplomacy is good, but it ends at a point. When a ruler wants the territory or the resources of another ruler, what do they do? They take it by force. And so John looks in verse 4 and he sees this bright red horse. And the, hor the rider of this horse was given a sword and was able to take peace from the earth so that people should kill each other. This bright red horse is a clear symbol of the bloodshed that comes as earthly kings seek to have dominance over other kings. As they seek to expand their empires, they steal, kill, and destroy 
anything or anyone that stands in their way. And the result is bloodshed. But notice in the text, it's not the rider that's doing the killing. It's actually the people. The people are killing each other. And these are people, to go back to the call to worship, these are people that were created in God's image to rule the world in kindness and love, in harmony with God's will, killing each other. They're in this spiral of greed and violence, seeking their own desires. But now in verses 5 and 6, the third horse, a black horse, emerges, and the rider carries a pair of scales. In the original context, this would have been a clear indication of famine and economic disparity. I want to point out, though, that these things come on the heels of military rulers attempting to conquer other people and shedding blood. These things go hand in hand. When conquest happens through force and bloodshed, famine and economic injustice are right on its heels. And here we see a voice crying out from somewhere among the creatures, and it's saying that a day's supply of wheat for one person will now cost an entire day's wage. If you want to feed your family, you have to get lesser quality grain, barley, for your entire day's wage, for one day's worth of food. This is like approximately an 800% inflation at the time. But the same voice also indicates that the price and the supply of the luxuries, oil and wine, should not be tampered with. So what does that mean? The point is that those who are in power will control and limit resources for their own benefit at the expense of others. See, the, the, those who were in power, who had wealth, didn't want anybody to mess with their oil and their wine. But those who were just your average day person, these people cannot afford those luxuries. They're spending their entire wage on one day's worth of food. This is an indication, and this is the first indication in the text that these judgments are actually limited in their scope. This actually doesn't depict worldwide starvation, but this depicts more localized injustice and hunger and famine. You see that? If there's still luxuries that exist that are benefiting certain people, this is not all-out worldwide starvation. It is limited. The Lord's judgments that are released in these seals are limited in their scope. And so now in verse 8, we see the fourth horse emerge. It's the pale horse. I want to point out that the color pale is actually pale green. The word is chloros, and this is actually meant to depict something like you would see in a zombie poster, the pale green of a corpse. And this identification is confirmed by the fact that the rider is named Death and the grave, or Hades, follows closely behind him. Death and Hades are given authority over one-fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and famine and pestilence and by wild beasts. This is a horrible, gruesome image, is it not? This is devastating destruction. 
But I want to point out, when we read numbers in the book of Revelation, we're not to take them as statistical amounts. We're supposed to see these as prophetic symbols of certain points. And so when we read that one-fourth of the earth was given over to death in Hades, it's important that we don't miss the fact that God is restraining their destruction. He's limiting their destruction. He is allowing them to issue judgment at a certain limit. And so when we read this, it is still horrible. It's gruesome. But God is restraining the full force of evil. I also want to point out, when we read this verse, they were given authority to kill with the sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. These are direct links back to God's original covenant with Israel in Leviticus 26. These were God's given promised curses for those who would reject his authority and worship false gods. He said, if you turn away from me, these things will happen. And these things are repeated in Ezekiel 14, verse 21. These four specific woes are mentioned by God as a consequence for worshiping idols. So when you take this into account, along with the fact that the sword was mentioned in the first seal, sorry, the second seal, famine was mentioned in the third seal, and also the fact that wild beasts in the Bible often depict rulers bent on prideful conquest, we have to see this fourth seal and these four woes as actually a summary of all first four seals. You see that? These are not four mutually exclusive chronological judgments happening, but these are actually these evil demonic forces going out into the earth simultaneously to issue judgment by carrying out further acts of rebellion. I want to point out Romans 1.18. You guys are familiar with Romans 1. It states that God's wrath is revealed. Specifically, it is presently being revealed against ungodliness. God's wrath is presently being revealed from heaven as people ignore the truth about who God is. And what happens, what that wrath being revealed looks like, skip down in Romans 1 to verse 28. He says, Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice these things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to any who practice them. Do you see the complexity of these judgments? God's judgments are unsearchable, and we cannot fully understand them. You guys believe that? We cannot fully comprehend these things. 
But the fact is that he's already begun revealing his wrath against ungodliness. And how does he do that? What does that wrath look like? I believe we just saw the picture of it in Revelation 6. When a person rejects God as their rightful ruler, he gives them over to a darkened mind to do the things that they want to do. Do you guys catch that? That is the result of rebellion and idolatry, is that God allows you to do what you really want. And when you do what you really want as a person who has rejected God, the results are conquest and bloodshed and war and dominance and slavery and violence and famine and abuse. Those are the results of having a heart that rejects God. And so these judgments are carried out by rebels rebelling further. And all the while, the ruler of the kings of earth is seated on his throne. Is he not? He's seated on his throne. And they're actually, in some way, shape, or form, we don't even fully understand it, they're actually serving his divine purposes in their rebellion. So the question is, what are those purposes? Why would God send them out to do these things? Why, if the Lamb has conquered, do these things exist in the world? That's the question that we have to grapple with. And the first thing that I want to point out is that when these judgments take place, actual wicked, horrible, violent people are punished for their wickedness. Think about that. We're talking about real people in time on this planet. And when God reveals these judgments, there is actual punishment, there is actual consequence brought to bear for that wickedness. We have to see Jesus as the perfect judge actually carrying out righteousness in punishing the wicked. We all long to see justice, don't we? Don't we? We all want justice. We have to understand that Jesus is right in issuing that justice, right? Actual wicked people who commit real injustice on the earth are stopped when these judgments take place. Those injustices and atrocities are born, like we just said, in an idolater's heart. Yet, at the same time, God limits and restrains depravity and evil from taking over the whole planet, doesn't he? Do you guys believe that? Think about, just, just for example, think about Adolf Hitler. Think about what it took to stop him from committing injustice. Think about the lives that were lost, the blood that was shed to stop him from doing evil. As earthly rulers seek to gain influence and power and conquest, bloodshed happens, evil is committed, and God sends other sinners, other rebels, so many different layers and facets of all these things happening, but they work themselves out in history, in real time and space, and evil is punished and restrained. The second thing that happens is that we are given a warning that because limited judgment is taking place, there will be ultimate final judgment. We know this in our hearts. 
We hope for that justice, don't we? We look forward to that justice. I want to go back to Matthew 24. As the disciples asked Jesus about these things, when is all this going to happen? He answered them and says, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and all these things are but the beginning of the birth pains. How many of you have had a baby? What happens when you go into labor and you start having contractions? Do you just sit there? Do you ignore them? No. They've, God has graciously given us, this is mind-blowing, that he actually, as a curse for sin in the book of Genesis, gives women pain in childbearing. And then in Revelation, he says that those childbearing pains are actually a picture of these limited judgments that are pointing towards ultimate final judgment. And he just ties it all together through childbirth. When you go into labor and you feel those pains, you don't ignore them. They actually point to the fact that further pain is about to happen. These limited judgments that are unleashed in the first four seals point to the fact that God will ultimately and finally destroy evil. He will. It's destined to happen. And with that being said, the third thing that happens is as our hearts ponder these things and we grapple with them and we feel the need for that justice, we understand that justice must come from outside of the world. In those moments, sinners actually heed the warnings and will repent and be saved. Think about all the, the Old Testament prophets who are sent by God to declare to wicked people, your actions are evil and God will punish you if you don't repent. And what happens, not every time, but it does happen that sinners heed the warnings and they repent. That is another purpose of these judgments is that we would see this and look forward to the ultimate final judgment and say, I need saved. I need someone to save me. Peter says it in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that these things continue to happen, not because God is slow to fulfill his promise, not because he forgot, not because he takes joy in seeing these things happen, 2 Peter 3.9 says that God is actually displaying his patience towards you. He is displaying patience, wishing that all should reach repentance. Do you see what's happening here? As these limited judgments go out, he's actually calling you to be saved. He's calling us to repent. And he is the one who shed his own blood to save us. We can't miss Revelation 5. He's the lamb that was slain to ransom a people out of this wickedness. Next week, we're going to get into this with the fifth seal that Jesus would say to those who are enduring these atrocities, rest a little longer because the number is not yet complete of those that I will save. He's displaying his patience and calling us to repent. 
And the last thing that happens, for those who endure these awful things, if they happen around you and you are somehow experiencing the pain of these circumstances in the world, and again, depending on how you interpret the rapture, some would say no Christians will be present for these things. Others would say all Christians will be present for these things. We're not going to argue that today. My point is that if there are saints who endure these trials and tribulations, they are actually refined, they are strengthened, they are matured through that process. And when they are faithful to the end, what does Jesus promise? He promises to reward them, to exalt them, to share his kingdom and authority with them, and to actually vindicate everything that they experienced. That is the call for saints who endure these things. So how do we respond to this? How do we respond? These are weighty matters. I would say if you, if you have never come to Jesus to save you from his judgment, to forgive you of your sins, that is the first place to start. There's no other name given among men which can save us other than Jesus, the God-man, who died on the cross, who rose again to save us and redeem us. But if you already know Christ, if you are one of his followers, how do we respond? Can we go home and get into a debate on Facebook about politics and think that that's going to solve the problem? Can we go home and watch graphic shows and movies about these atrocities and in so doing approve them and think that it's not damaging us? Should we go home and ignore those around us who don't believe in Jesus, who reject his authority? Should we just let them carry on in their ways? Jesus said to his disciples, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has fixed in his own authority, but here's what you need to know. He has given you power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be his witnesses. That is our mission. Our mission is to follow in the footsteps of Christ into the darkness of this evil that surrounds us and to, to, to carry the flame of his presence to display his love, to demonstrate his kingdom, to proclaim the gospel, the good news that he will save sinners who repent. That is our call. He sends us to the ends of the earth to do that. I'm going to transition now to the Lord's table as we wrap up our time. What a better way to conclude a message about judgment than celebrating the Lord's body and blood that were broken and shed to save us. Amen? I'm going to ask you guys to, to go ahead and we'll do our procession. And the communion elements are up here on the table. Again, if you're, if you're following Jesus, partake in the table. If you have not yet made the decision to follow Jesus, just refrain. But I'm going to invite you guys to come and grab the elements, return to your seats, and 
we'll take them together in a minute. 